started class at the University of Kentucky passionately following Jesus. Their zeal for Christ and desire to show the world what Jesus is like, it caught the attention of a lot of people. And there was this girl in their dormitory who was watching them. She had never seen someone so passionately follow Jesus. Fast forward a year, that girl on her birthday bows her knee and gives her life to Jesus. She was connected because of those two guys to a local church. She grew in the gospel and became my wife. Who you get to hear preach this morning is a man who has been instrumental in my family. Not only is Nathan Milliken um, a dear brother, uh, he was instrumental in leading my wife to faith in Jesus. Nathan invited me as a new believer to go to church. And it was there at that church where I not only found fellowship and brotherhood, I was baptized, called to ministry, and God has changed my life ever since, all because of his invitation to a local church. And I praise God for this brother. He is um, the state director of missions for the state of Indiana. He works for the North American Mission Board. He's also serving on staff at Graceland Baptist Church in New Albany, Indiana. And I love this guy so much that my youngest son is named after him. And he is in town. Uh, as many of you may know, the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting is meeting this week in Birmingham. And it's going to be a great week. I invite you to pray for that. It's free and open to the public. So if you want to come and listen to the, or the gatherings, we invite you to come. But I've asked Nathan uh, to come and bring God's word to us this morning. So would you join me in welcoming Nathan to come and preach? Love you, my friend. Grateful for you. So I better kill it with this sermon, right? I mean, like, what an introduction. Um, yeah, I serve as a, as a husband, dad, and pastor. Uh, I have one wife, Lauren. Four kids, she's not with me because honestly, who wants to come to the Southern Baptist Convention? I don't even want to be there. And so um, she is back home with our kids and uh, she loves this church. We never served here. Um, my, my brother Micah served here back in the days. So he's here. And it, this, is, this is probably a normal Sunday for a lot of you, but for me, this is kind of a, a sweet reunion. Uh, Colby Adams, who's a, a vice president at Southwestern Seminary, Kenneth, Micah, just we were good friends and God did something special in that season at Porter Memorial Baptist Church. I want to dog on Kenneth just for a moment. We were uh, playing golf at Tate's Creek Golf Course in Lexington, Kentucky. I had been married for a year or two, and you know, newly married couples, what do they do? They try to play matchmaker with everybody around them. And Kenneth was single, um, and, and I said, hey, have you ever thought about pursuing Christy? I mean, she is gorgeous. She loves Jesus. I don't think that you have a shot, but you should at least, you should at least try. And, uh, and so obviously they, they started dating and Kenneth called me. He does not remember this, but this is the gospel truth. I'm not making this up. I promise you. Uh, he called me one night and it was about a 45 second phone call. He goes, Hey, I'm on a date with Christy. I said, Oh, that's cool. Where are you? Walmart. <laughs> well, Hey man, that's, that's great. He goes, I'm here because I know I'm going to run into somebody that needs the gospel and I want to share the gospel, but I, I don't want to share the gospel like, for the right reasons, I want to share the gospel because I know that it will impress Christy. He goes, what should I do? And I said, well, the Bible tells us to share the gospel, right? And he says, yeah. I said, share the gospel, then just repent of your motives later. And just, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be fine. And so, um, 
Kenneth, God's hand is, is on you. I mean, I think about uh, 1 Peter 5 where Peter writes, um, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of the Lord and at the appropriate time God will lift you up. Um, God has given you a lot of favor. And you're a man of humility, a man who's teachable, a man who understands that you don't have everything together. And uh, I'm grateful for your friendship, your leadership. And it's really, really um, sweet to see what God's doing in your life and your marriage and in this church. And uh, I'm grateful to be here. It's God's grace for me to be here with you. Hey, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Philippians chapter 1, 9 through 11. I came in this morning and I saw this projection on the screen. I said, oh man, that is so cool. What's that for? And Kenneth goes, that's the title of the sermon that you gave me on email. I was like, oh, that's right. That's why it sound, looks so strikingly familiar. And so we're, I'm preaching on a pastor's passionate prayer in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And if you have your Bible turned there or your phone, let's stand together as we read God's word. And I'm reading out of ESV. We're going to read it together. My voice is a little louder than yours. I've got a mic, but let's read it out loud together. Verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word to us. May he bless the preaching of it. You can be seated. About four months ago, I was at a meeting in Alpharetta, Georgia, where the headquarters of North American Mission Board is, and sitting at a table with five or six other individuals. And the question came up, hey, what are you praying for? What are you asking the Lord for? So we went around, and this last brother's name was Chris. He said, there's lots of things I can be praying for, but I'm, I'm just praying for intimacy with Jesus. And when he said that, I'm just being transparent with you, in my heart I scoffed. I know that does not sound very godly at all. I scoffed. I just thought, we're praying for laborers, we're praying for initiatives, we're praying for all these plans, and you're praying for intimacy with Jesus. It just sounded like one of those pat, you know, Jesus answers. And over the course of the next several months, the Spirit of God used that brother's response to really rebuke me because it exposed in me what I was not pursuing and what I didn't really want. I mean, I wanted intimacy with Jesus, but it wasn't on the forefront of my mind. And as I think about his response and I think about my life as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor, as somebody who serves with the North American Mission Board, as someone who's a friend, as somebody, a friend to, to people who are believers, a friend to people who are not believers, what I want is I want intimacy with Jesus. I want to love Jesus with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want the totality of my life to surrender and love Christ because if you get that right, you get everything else in order. Everything else is in alignment when you're loving Jesus with the totality of your life. That's what he says. It's the first commandment. To love Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as your self. So this is Paul's prayer. He is praying for the saints in Philippi. He's praying for the overseers and the deacons and the saints, all these individuals. And most people think, I used to think this, that the book of Philippians, the, the theme, the thrust of Philippians was joy. Right? We think about Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord all. You know, I can't even actually quote that verse without singing that song that I learned years ago. But I don't think it's joy. I think it's solidarity. I think it's fellowship. I think it's partnership. Paul is writing to the saints in Philippi, and he's thanking them for their partnership in the gospel. In fact, he says, hey, you know that once I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me except you only. You gave me gifts, and you prayed 
fragrance offering. So I think the theme, the thrust of Philippians is partnership in the gospel. And so he prays this prayer for them that they might love Christ more and more and lean into the partnership and that that partnership might go out beyond Philippi. And so I think the same thing about here in Alabaster and New Albany and Alpharetta and wherever else. What does the partnership with the gospel look like in the years to come as we try to champion and push back the kingdom of darkness with the kingdom of light? So this is Paul's prayer for them. And if you've ever wondered when people say, hey, I'm praying for you, have you ever asked, what are you, what are you actually praying? Like you, should, you should ask that next time. Hey, I'm praying for you. Well, what are you praying specifically? I think this is a prayer that we pray for not only ourselves, but for others. Paul prays that their love may abound more and more. But that's a means to an end. He wants them to pursue and discern what is best. So if you're a believer, it's just kind of part of our psyche. We want to make godly, excellent right decisions. I've never even met a, a non-Christian who says, you know what, my pursuit in life is to make poor decisions. Now we might look at their life and say, you're doing a great job. And they might look at us and say, you're doing a good job too because I'm following you. But we all want to, religious or irreligious, we want to make wise, godly, excellent decisions. And he says, I want your love for Jesus to abound more and more and more. Now when we hear the word love, we might wrongly think of Valentine's Day cards, romantic movies, flowers, sweet, sentimental interactions, and emotional, physical give and take. But that's not what Paul is referring to. The love that Paul is referring to is a love that costs, uh, a love that is expensive, a love that is sacrificial, a love that is willing to be inconvenienced and, and be uh, uh, out of comfort. And so this is a love that invests in others and meets other people's needs, regardless of whether or not they show appreciation, right? Oftentimes we want to love people and serve people because I know they're going to respond with appreciation and gratitude. This is a love that is willing to be inconvenienced, that's willing to be uh, sacrificial, and it's an expensive love. It's a love that John writes in John three sixteen: for God so loved the world, right, that he gave. It's a sacrificial love. It's the same thing we see in 1 John three sixteen. Where John writes this, God gave the world a son. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to serve and lay down our life for others. So the love that God wants us to have and grow in and have cultivated in our life is a strong, rich, fierce, robust, expensive, costly, sacrificial love that we exemplify to the world. If you want a rich, abundant marriage, drink deeply from the reservoir of this love. If you want a rich, full, robust relationship with your kids and your neighbors and acquaintances and extended family, drink deeply from the reservoir of God's sacrificial, expensive, costly, eternity-altering love. It's a life-changing love because it's found in the one who gave us his life. He tells them to have this love more and more. It's not speaking of something that they don't have, but they do have, and he wants them to cultivate this, which is why elsewhere in Philippians, he comments on selfishness, right? Philippians 2. Do not pursue selfish ambition or vain conceit. Let none of you do that. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Why would Paul write these things, pen this in this letter to the saints in Philippi? Because as he's writing these things, they were things going on in this church, 
Now, I don't have to ask you, we all know in the church, does, is selfishness ever rampant? Is there, is there ever decisions made and relational conflict that comes back to because we're being selfish? The answer is yes, because we are sinners and we still struggle with putting ourselves second um, as opposed to putting ourselves to the way that God would want us to have us in terms of thinking about others. He says, think about others first. This is a costly love. And he says, we see that this love is to grow and grow and flourish. And it's to be guided by, if you look at verse 9, your love may abound more and more with knowledge, discernment. They go hand in hand. Love is not blind. We're to have a love that is eyes wide open and is looking out in front of us. It's a discriminating love. A love that has the constraints of knowledge and wisdom. We're not just to love aimlessly or arbitrarily. This is a knowledge that of the gospel of Christ. So I want your love for Christ to abound and be cultivated more and more and more with knowledge. What is the knowledge he's talking about? Just accumulation of facts? I've gone to Bible studies. I know more than what I did. That's not what he's talking about. The word knowledge actually refers to a deep, robust grasp of the gospel of Christ. I want your love to grow with an understanding and deep grasp of the gospel. So let me give you a couple examples. Here's one from a 16-year-old girl. Yes, I know that Jesus loves me. I know that he saved me. I know that he's going to take me to heaven, but what good is it when no boy at school will even look at me? She knew all the truths about being a Christian, but they were no comfort to her. The attention or lack of it of a cute boy was far more consoling and energizing and foundational for her joy and self-worth and her identity than the love of Christ. She had an opinion that Jesus loved her, but she didn't really know it deep in her heart. Christ's love was an abstract concept while the love of others was real to her heart. That reality is what captured her heart. You say, well, Nate, she's 16. That makes sense. Well, let me give you another example. What about the reality and the punishment that hell is? I mean, we, we, we're going to live forever. Everybody in this room is going to live forever. When's the last time you were broken about somebody who doesn't know Jesus? When's the last time you wept over somebody who's lost? When's the last time you uh, stood out of your comfort zone and invited somebody into your home to have a gospel conversation? When's the last time? For a lot of us, it's, boy, it's probably been longer than it needs to be. Why? Because at times, the good news of Christ, and it's only good news because there's some egregious bad news the goodness of Christ is not this reality that's on the forefront of our mind all the time. And we forget, right? We have a tight grip on the things of the world and a loose grip on the things of heaven. And what Paul is saying, I'm writing to you, saints in Philippi, that your love for Christ, this expensive, costly, sacrificial love, would abound more and more with an understanding that's tethered to the good news of Christ and discernment. Paul wants their knowledge of Jesus, their love of Jesus to be the center, the focal point, the all-consuming reality of their lives. Our love is to be informed by knowledge and, inform and informed by discernment, he says there in verse 9. Literally, it means all insight or moral perception. Genuine love 
leads to real people living in the real world with eyes wide open as opposed to superficial love that ignores realities because we're fearful of offense or resentment. One of real love for real people that has eyes wide open in the world today. So true biblical love seeks truth, defends truth, champions truth, shares truth, hears truth. The love that Paul wants the saints in Philippi And the love that Paul wants us to have is a love that's informed with knowledge and insightful discernment. This is the love that we're to grow in. And he tells us in verses 10 through 11 that there's three outcomes to this love. The love that abounds in the hearts of the saints in Philippi and hopefully here in the saints at Westwood has three outcomes. First, approving what is excellent. If you have a love that's growing, that's tethered and rooted in the good news of Christ, With moral insight, discernment, it's going to produce three things in our lives. Approving what is excellent will be pure and blameless. They go together and will give glory to God. We're going to be able to approve what is excellent. We're going to be pure and blameless and we're going to give glory to God. First, approving what is excellent. This is an imagery that speaks of a buyer evaluating competing products and making a decision, putting their claims to the test before they purchased the one that stands out from the rest. It's the ability to make proper assessments about life. Some things matter, and some things just don't. Some things are really important, and some things are not. And hopefully, like a mutual fund portfolio, you are growing and ascending in your ability to actually make proper assessments about life. And with practice, you develop a taste for the things to come, a taste for the things of God. This is what David writes in Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. As you taste the Lord and walk with the Lord and meditate on his promises and lean into his character and think about his ways and the goodness of Christ, you're going to grow in your affections and in your love for the things of God. And here's the contrast of what he's saying. If you're not growing in your love for Jesus that's tethered and rooted in the good news of Christ and with discernment, you actually can't make good decisions. You can't make excellent decisions. You're you're not able to approve what is excellent. Have you ever wondered, and don't like nudge somebody or point somebody out here, okay? So don't do that. Have you ever wondered, why do they incessantly make poor decisions? sinful, selfish, dumb decisions. Have you ever wondered that? Show of hands. Anybody ever wondered that about somebody else? Not somebody close, right? I've got one honest person, okay? We wonder, nine, nine, it's growing. I see that hand, I see that hand. And so, if you're, Paul says you cannot make excellent decisions if your love for Jesus is not growing. I mean, that's what Paul's saying. That's what he's writing. So here's some examples of some excellent decisions. Are you committed in your leisure time to what is best? Excellent. TV, social media. I've got this thing on my phone where I can go back and it like tracks how long I spend on certain apps. I hate that little function of my phone because it's an insight into what I love. It's an insight into my identity. It's an insight to where my heart is. 
How are your relationships with your family, your spouse? Do you ever pause amid the busyness of your life and think, how can I strengthen my marriage? How can I strengthen and cultivate my relationship with my kids or my neighbors? Do you see your money and the skills that God has given you as a stewardship? And do you find joy in giving and supporting gospel work to what is best? I was so encouraged a couple weeks ago. You guys came on a Sunday and Kenneth made a pitch about having 60, I think, unchurched students go to camp for free. And you needed like $10,000 and you raised $10,000 giving what is best. Could you have used that money for something else? Yes. I can think of 9,412 things I could have used that money for. But you're sending a kid to camp and it could change the eternal trajectory of their life. Has your commitment to people grown over the years and do you think of ways to serve people or are you growing in your cynicism and your cantankerousness we want to choose what is excellent and this is not box checking christianity because as christians we can become champs at box checking christianity right i've gone to service i took communion i raised my hands i went to group i've invited somebody at easter one time a year check the box i'm doing great god must be so thankful to have me on his team we're not talking about box checking christianity but we're talking about if jesus has changed you I shouldn't have to convince you to want to believe and follow him to greater depths. If you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and he is so good, he is so good. All the graces that he's given us in his life, it compels us, compels us not to merit or earn the favor of God because we have the pleasure of the God of the universe because we are in Christ. There's nothing that you can do to unearn the pleasure of the king. So this is not box-checking Christianity because the last thing I want to do is try to motivate you by guilt because guilt lasts about 19 seconds and then we just go back to who we were. But the gospel moves us, doesn't it? Jesus moves us to make excellent decisions. He says, secondly, we'll be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Pure and blameless. Now, when you hear the words pure and blameless, you might think stodgy, boring, prudish, holier than thou, self-righteous. But remember, this letter is written to the saints in Philippi around the Greco-Roman culture. And that Greco-Roman culture was deeply, not only unjust, but immoral and ungodly, just like ours. Just like ours. Things really haven't changed a whole lot. And a love for God, a love for God is a love that's going to manifest itself in wise decisions, approving what is excellent, evaluating things. That is what Jesus wants me to do over against this. I'm going to approve what is excellent, and I'm going to be pure and blameless. The word pure that Paul uses is one of a lot of words that Paul could have used for the word pure. The one he uses here is the word for sincerity, authenticity, and a lack of mixed motives and a transparent integrity that has nothing to hide. What you see is what you get. They're a person of integrity. They're a person of character. It describes a person who isn't falling into sin and isn't causing others to fall into sin. Our lives should commend the good news of Christ to others. Our lives should commend the good news of Christ to others. So all three of these qualities, pure, 
blameless, the fruit of righteousness, refer to the ethical qualities of a believer. You're going to grow in your love for Jesus, tethered to the good news of Christ, tethered with moral clarity, discernment. It's going to produce you being able to make excellent decisions and being pure and blameless. So let me summarize it real quick. He prays that your love and my love for Jesus would grow more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we are going to be able to discern what is best and what is truly excellent for the purpose that you and I would be pure and blameless in our words, affections, actions, motives, thoughts with an eye or a view to the day of Christ as he says there in the latter part of verse 10. With an eye or a view to the day of Christ. The return of Christ. Which doesn't mean, he's not saying this, you better grow in your love for Jesus. And you better live right because at the end, you may be caught and suffer horrible judgment. He's got his thumb on you. That's not, he's not saying God's some cosmic killjoy. What he's doing, he's writing to believers and we understand as a believer, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? Because our sin was placed on Jesus. It's not on us anymore. It's on Jesus. It's not on us. And we are in Christ. And so the condemnation that Christ experienced is no longer ours. It was transferred to him. He experienced. And so though there is sin in us, right? Right? There's sin in us. Have you sinned today? Probably. Ask the person next to you, your spouse, your kids. Probably. I've sinned today. But sin's not on me. Because I've, I've expressed repentance and faith in Christ. It's on Jesus and there's no sin on me. But what he's saying is that believers, you and I need to live in such a way that we understand we're moving towards that day. What is that day? The return of Christ or when he calls us home. So it should constrain our thoughts and our habits and our pursuits and our affections and our lives and our marriage and our money and our behavior. We are His and one day we will be with Him. We need to keep that in mind. That all that we do, all that we say, all that we think, all that we pursue is about looking forward to that day. I had a friend of mine tell me that one of the characteristics of people who are spiritually mature are those that long for and anticipate the return of Christ. Or going home to be with him. Now, we don't have to do a show of hands. I'm just going to raise my hand as I ask this question. Nathan, how many times do you think about the return of Christ? Or do you on any given day think about the, the return of Christ? I don't think about it that much. Because I have a tight grip on the things of the world. My house. My money. My reputation. My legacy. My kids. My friendships. My car vacation, on and on and on. And that tight grip hinders me from having a tight grip on the things of Jesus. I should have a loose grip on the things of the world and a tight grip on my identity and my citizenship that is found in Christ in heaven. He says, do all this longing for that day. And what does it result in? Thirdly, it results in glorifying God. God gets the praise. God gets the credit. God gets the renown. He's at the center, not us. That's why we need the gospel. 
The gospel teaches us and informs us you are not at the center. Every movie, every book, our lives, when we tell story, we're at the center. And until you understand the story does not exist for you at the center, but Jesus is at the center and the gospel informs and guides us until we understand that you can't really become a Christian. Because the first step in becoming a Christian is to realize it's not about me. It's about Jesus and who he is and what he's done and what he'll do in me if I come to him and make him the hero because he is the hero and he'll get the glory, he'll get the praise because we want to take credit. But God gets the credit. Well, how does this happen? Okay, I want to be someone whose love for Jesus grows and grows, tethered to the good news of Christ and discernment, and I want to make godly decisions, and I want to be pure and blameless, and I want God to get the glory. How does that happen in my life? How do I do that? I want to pursue that. I want that to be the reality in my life. Well, he tells us in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Through Jesus Christ, it's only possible to live rightly and to do so with motives that are right. And the first 11 verses, Christ is mentioned seven times. Then in chapter 1, verse 21, chapter 3, verse 8, chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, and on and on and on. Jesus is the pathway by which Paul's prayer for his friends can actually be realized. Jesus is the one to whom the Father pours out his love for you and for me. He's the answer to this question. How does God change selfish people into people who care more about others? How does God make a shift in our affections and our actions where we're primarily concerned about our own interest and move to being primarily concerned about others? How? Through Jesus Christ. It starts with the new life. Think about this. If you're already a parent, or when God gives you children, you remember the day that another human being came into your life. Think about marriage. Think about parents. Same thing. They weren't a part of your life. They weren't there. And now they are here and they're there. And it reminds you as a husband, as a wife, as a mom, as a dad, as a grandparent, that you are not to be primarily concerned about yourself, but someone else. A birth brought about a new change of perspective, didn't it? It brought about a change where you understand, I cannot be intimately focused and concerned about me. I've got to care for this little child. Or in marriage, you have a new relationship and they weren't there, now they're here and you're you're connected to her and and she's connected to you. And so this new relationship, this, this birth brought about a change. Paul says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. When you are born again, when you get saved, when you go from unforgiven to forgiven, there is a change in perspective of life. It's not, it's not uh, holistic in terms of every single facet of your life is instantly changed, but there's a change in your heart, a new birth. And over the course of your life, God wants you to more and more and more grow in your love for Jesus. He is relentlessly committed to seeing every facet of our lives surrendered to him. So if you're not a Christian, you need to become a Christian. I don't think for a moment everybody in the room is a believer. I think there are lots of people who think I go to church, I do the right thing, and at the end of the day, there's this great cosmic scale, and God's going to look and say, hey, your good deeds, your morality, your niceness, your love for people outweighs all the things that you didn't do, you shouldn't have done, and so come on in. That, God doesn't operate on that way. It's kind of like a courtroom setting. And God is this judge that has to punish sin. 
And there's the defense attorney, Jesus, and then we have a prosecuting attorney, and we're the accused, and this prosecuting attorney has done a masterful, thorough job of laying all of the accusations, and we are guilty of every single one of them. And he's about to smack the gavel and declare us guilty, but then Jesus comes. Praise God for Jesus. He comes and says, I'm going to take the penalty, the punishment for the accused. And so the judge, instead of smacking the gavel and declaring us guilty, smacks the gavel and declares us not guilty on account of what somebody else did. And their life, they intervened for us. And we get to walk away scot-free. The gospel, the goodness of Christ, is really a scandalous message that God would let sinners go free because of the sacrifice of his son. A new birth brings about a change in our life where we want to love Jesus. We want to be rooted in the gospel. We want to have discernment so we can make excellent decisions. We want to be pure and blameless to commend the gospel, the good news of our faith to others. And we want to glorify God. So if I were to pray for you, and maybe if you were to pray for me, here's what I might pray. I pray that your love would abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that you and I could approve what is excellent for the result that we might be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes with the new birth, the power of the gospel of Christ to the glory and the praise of God. 